Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, and this is the first of three episodes highlighting amazing Indigenous women in honor of Native American Heritage Month. This episode, we will hear from Minnesota Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan and Tashia Arnold with the Center for Native American Youth. Lieutenant Governor Flanagan is currently the only Native woman serving in statewide elected office. She got her start at the local level in the Minnesota State House, where she championed women and people of color. As Lieutenant Governor, she has continued her focus on ensuring that Minnesota's underserved populations are not left behind. Lieutenant Governor, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. So I do want to dive right in. You served your career in the state house and then you ran for statewide office. I was one of those many people that watched your race and awe and just amazement at how fabulous you are. But when we look at the numbers, there are 91 women serving in statewide office across the U.S. and you're currently the only Native woman serving out of those 91. What are some of the barriers that you think we need to break to see more Native women in elected office? Well, I think one of the things that I want to emphasize is that Native women have been leading since time immemorial. Um, Amen. You know, and so uh, Native women and Native Americans as a whole are far too underrepresented in local, state, and federal governments. But I think um, as we see the success of uh, Congresswoman Sharice Davids, Congresswoman Deb Holland, as well as more and more Native women uh, who are running for office in historic numbers in this past election, and I think that's not a one-off. It will—it's a, a trend into the future. Um, you know, I think mainstream society is just catching up to what we've always known—that our our women are leaders and. We absolutely want to be at the table uh, to make decisions that affect uh, our, our own communities. And we know that when we have women represent at the table, things are different. And we see that under your administration in Minnesota, one of the things that I just saw is that the state held a two-day government-to-government tribal relations training with all of your state agencies and the governor's office. And you commented our administration has committed to strengthening relationships with all 11 tribal nations and our urban Indian communities in Minnesota. And I think this is a really good example on how states can forge better relationships with tribal nations. So what are some of the key lessons that came out of that training that you think other states can be utilizing? Well, I think one of the things that was really important to to the governor and and me was to make sure, you know, that we uh, are trying to become a model for the rest of the country and how we essentially build relationships that are government to government, uh, honor treaty rights and tribal sovereignty. And and this, frankly, isn't and shouldn't be seen as a new thing. We are simply doing what has been required of us for the last 150 plus years since Minnesota was a state. So, you know, my hope is that as we are figuring this out, we, you know, are working across agencies uh, and and figure out how to how to do this well. I think education about who we are, um, how our tribal governments uh, function as sovereign nations, how they self-govern, and how they possess self-determination for uh, federal government employees, all of these things. Things, you know, are incredibly important for non-Native people to understand that we are contemporary people. We still exist. And I think a big takeaway, too, for a lot of the non-Native people who attended the training was acknowledging the 
generations of of trauma, frankly, that that have occurred with Native people and that you can see some of the effects still to this day. But also as we talk about things like treaties, treaties aren't just for Native people. They are also for non-Native people who are in Minnesota. So Minnesota exists because of a treaty. Um, and I think it is, it is critically important that we um, continue to educate folks across you know, government, of course, but more broadly through our K-12 system as well, about the people who have always been here, are still here, and will always be here into the future. And when I think about what you did with the tribal relations training, you've been just a trendsetter since you stepped foot in local government. And during your time in the state house, you helped create the People of Color and Indigenous Caucus which focus on improving the education, health, and economic opportunities of people of color and indigenous communities in Minnesota. And we all know as black and brown people, indigenous people, people of color, that these spaces are really important, but a lot of the times people will see them as divisive. So from your point of view, why is it important, why is it important for us to create these spaces, especially when we have that seat at the table and the opportunity? Well, I think, you know, government works well when it reflects the population it seeks to represent. And so if we don't have um, folks at the table, uh, I think that democracy is unable to flourish. So I think part of um, creating the People of Color and Indigenous Caucus was to ensure that, you know, we were making our voices heard, but in turn, the people that we represent, because for too often, decisions have been made about people of color, indigenous folks, without our input at the table. We do things to communities and not with them. Uh, if we're doing this this correctly, uh, we're able to bring policy solutions from the people who are most directly affected. Uh, those are things that are going to be more long lasting, have community buy-in, and, and I think uh, the solutions that will work. So part of creating in the Posse Caucus was making sure we could speak on our own behalf, but just to, you know, to just be really honest, to also have a safe place for ourselves, for each other, uh, to be able to talk about um, some of the the issues of um, racism in, in systems. And, and really, you know, I think about this every day. Uh, as an Indigenous woman who's serving in state government, I am working in a system that was not created by us or for us, and in many instances was created to eliminate us. And so I think having a caucus that created community allowed us a place to, frankly, amplify one another and to, to really speak with authority on behalf of our own communities was powerful. And now the Posse Caucus in the House and Senate has grown since the last election, and uh, it's it's exciting to see. And I think it then allows more folks from communities of color to say, there's a place and a space for me there. Uh, I'm going to step up and run for office. I really love what you said about us being in the system, because a question I get from people all the time is, well, what challenges do you have on a daily basis doing work in politics? And I remind them, I wake up every day and I play in a system that never prepared or never thought that I would be a participant. Mm -hmm. We're constantly navigating things every single day, which segues me to my next question is, I saw a great picture of you with Congresswoman Deb Holland and Sharice <laughs> Davids. A beautiful picture. You know, all three of you broke barriers in 2018. How has having the support of other Native women impacted your time in office? 
Well, I just have to say, you know, when uh, Sharice and Deb were here uh, in Minneapolis, we went, we got to go to Anishinaabe Academy, which is a K-8 school for indigenous kids in Minneapolis. It was powerful uh, to be with these young native kids, but also with my two sisters talking about our own experiences and just uh the path uh, that led us to, to be in that room and that space together. We have a, a little text group and cheer each other on. And um, I was at the State of the Union, was the guest of Senator Tina Smith. And when Sharice and Deb came in, they I heard suddenly, Peggy, Peggy, from down from the floor. And here are my two Native sisters who are waving to me um, from the, the floor of Congress. It matters tremendously. And one of my dearest friends in the legislature is Representative Jamie Becker Finn. Uh, she's Ojibwe from Leech Lake and uh, is just having her friendship and understanding uh, is critically important. And so I think, you know, for other women and women of color in particular who are thinking about running for office, there are people who will be there for you and support you. And you just need to find your crew who are going to give you, uh, you know, that, that support, that caring, allow you to be yourself, to be vulnerable so that you can go out and do the best job possible in, in serving your constituents. But I think that that community is critical um, as we're navigating this every day. And frankly, you know, Ashanti, I think it's it's really important that you're doing this work and that you talk about being in a system every day that is not created for you, um, because I think that is so real. And when it comes to issues facing communities of color, or the Native community, we have to start from walking people through uh, the history of everything that has happened in our communities before we can even get to the issues around policy um, or or campaigns and elections, and you know it's it it can be a little a little exhausting. So um, I appreciate uh, this this space that you're creating because I think it's 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 really important. Thank you. I appreciate that. What advice do you have for the brown girls listening saying, I want to be just like her? Well, I would say uh, I want you to be just like you uh, to, to, these, uh, to these young girls and young women. Um, I think that too often we think that leadership is supposed to look and act uh, a certain way. Um, and the more uh, young women of color, uh, indigenous women who get engaged and involved in politics, the more that we are challenging what a leader looks like. I think it is incredibly important for our young people to find what you lose track of time doing, what feeds you, uh, and what is your gift and your role in the community, and then live into that role. Find your vocation. I think it is incredibly important for um, our young people to stand up for what they believe in, uh, to tell the truth, to... um, carry their own narrative and the stories of the community that they represent um, and to be unafraid to to be bold. And something that I think a lot about is just how many of us come from communities where our ancestors believed in this day, where we would be um, showing up and leading in a way that that they um, couldn't at the time, but cleared a path for us to be able to do so. So um, my advice uh, to young black and brown girls is you deserve to be seen, heard, and valued. 
And my job is to hold the door open for you. Uh, and we can't wait to see how you lead. Tired of listening to our depressing news while the country falls apart around us and you feel like there's nothing you can do to help? Then How We Win is your new Can't Miss No Matter What podcast from the grassroots organization Swing Left. Our country is seeing an unprecedented wave of activism on the left. People are waking up and stepping up to get involved. And in 2018, we elected a blue wave of Democrats to the House of Representatives. But that was just the beginning. Swing Left, How We Win, reports from the front lines the riveting run-up to November 2020 and how together we'll flip the Senate, fight back gerrymandering, and yes, evict Trump. Every Wednesday on How We Win, co-hosts Steve Pearson and Mariah Craven talk to guests including Senator Chris Murphy, Cecile Richards, actress Katherine Hahn, Representative Karen Bass, and the founding members of March for Our Lives. Each episode gives you the tools you need to make the biggest impact on these crucial elections, no matter where you live. The best antidote for anxiety is action. Get your weekly dose of hope. Subscribe now to Swing Left, How We Win on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods or at swingleft.org backslash podcast. The Center for Native American Youth believes all Native American youth should lead full and healthy lives, have equal access to opportunity, and draw strength from their culture and one another. I spoke to Tishia Arnold, a program associate with the center, about the work that they do as a national resource exchange and how they are building a Native youth-driven narrative. So let's dive right in. When did you discover your love of politics? So this is a fun question. I have been fortunate in the fact that I was able to join my general council, which is our tribe's um, annual voting process, basically, from a very young age. My my parents saw importance in having me go while I couldn't really, of course, vote until I was 18. I was able to at least see it firsthand. And so I would be running around the gym where they're held, you know, probably 10, 11. But when I was about 12 and 13, I really started to understand what was going on there and in getting to see kind of the voting process and the issues that were being brought forth and just watching my tribe come together once a year like that really kind of drove that love of politics. It also helped that my um, great uncle, Joe Delacruz, was a very prominent political figure in Washington state. So seeing the work that he do, he had done in his legacy that he had left really, really just inspired me to learn more and get involved. Oh, I love hearing that when the parents bring the babies along and then the babies get involved and start to really care about the issues. So once you became actively involved as someone who started at a young age, how did you pay it for? Which what were some of the ways in which you advocated for young people and women through your involvement in the tribe? A big part of this, I think, was just by participating and being present. Um, it is an ongoing issue that I see every year at General Council that a lot of younger people don't often attend. So we are able to vote in the Quinault tribe at the age of eighteen. You can go to um, general council as long as you're an enrolled member prior to that. 
but a lot of people I don't think see the value in it. So I think for me, it's just by participating and showing that you don't have to exactly know everything that's going on, but just by being present and being there is really important. I've also tried through my my work to reach out to people from the tribe and kind of see how I can help them get more involved. A lot of it is just being a role model, I think. That's awesome. So you grew up in Washington State, which does have a substantial indigenous population. What do you think many people get wrong when it comes to Native political involvement? Oh, this is a great question, and I'm so happy you're asking this. The biggest misconception, I believe, and this has actually been proven a little bit by a, a group called Illuminative, is actually that Native people don't understand politics, that we have no idea how to govern ourselves, and that we just don't know anything. And being from the Pacific Northwest and growing up in a state where there is a very large Native population, that is not the case. And I think a lot of confusion also stems from the fact that people don't really understand what a sovereign nation is and and how we kind of function in the big overarching government. And so for us, we are a sovereign nation. So we are able to govern ourselves. We create our own laws, our own rules, our own policies, but we also then interact with the county, the state, federal. So we interact with all of those groups, but we get to govern ourselves. And I think there's just a lot of confusion and misconceptions really surrounding what that means. Um, And it is kind of a joke amongst natives that we are born politicians because we have to be aware and we have to know what goes on in order to kind of just exist and thrive in our communities. That's powerful. You mentioned the work that you do. You currently work at the Center for Native American Youth, which is part of the Aspen Institute. How did you get connected to them? And tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Yeah, so this is actually kind of a funny story. Um, We, my husband, my family and I, we moved to Washington, D.C. about four years ago. And prior to that, I kind of was just a stay-at-home mom, and I really didn't have a lot of direction just yet. And I found this program at Clemson University, um, the Youth Development Leadership Program, and getting involved in that and getting enrolled and being accepted really kind of pushed me into the next phase of, of my career. And one of the first assignments we had was to go out and find an organization that we thought was cool, basically, and interview someone from there. And so I got Um, my first job with CNAY by interviewing one of the previous employees and she encouraged me to apply apply for the internship and I have been here ever since which is kind of hilarious and amazing and and I have grown and it's been so just so much fun to kind of see where I started as a communications intern to now I'm a program associate here and my main job now is I help to manage and run the Generation Indigenous Network, which was an initiative started by Obama in 2014, actually, meant to provide a platform for Native youth to elevate their voices, share their stories, and provide them opportunities and resources. And that is, currently we have over 2,300 people in that network, and we're looking for ways to expand and do better engagement and outreach. We're just trying to evolve and 
keep it alive and make sure that people know about it and that they're involved. They know that they can get involved and they can always reach out to me. And I get to to listen and take their stories and share them with the nation, which it's one of my favorite parts of what I do. That's great. And something I want to talk about a little bit more is you said you started as an intern and then you became an associate. We have so many young people who listen to the podcast who are doing internships and they want to know how they parlay that into a career. What advice would you give to them? How did you make that leap so that they can learn some of the best tools and resources to go from intern to actually an employee? A lot of it, I think, is just taking initiative and making sure that you kind of have your hands in a little bit of everything. That's what I tried to do while I was a communications intern. I tried to learn as much as I could about the programming, about grants, about our finances, and just try to really dabble and get involved in as much as possible. But it's also just taking the time to build those relationships with your coworkers and getting to know them and understand their passion for the work. I'm very fortunate that at a Native org, the majority of us are Native people. So we have been able to connect on that. And, and there's kind of that baseline understanding of one another because we share that experience. Um, but it is just take the initiative, find out as much as you can, just become a sponge and soak up as much knowledge as you possibly can um, in order to find ways that they can't get rid of you, basically. <laughs> <laughs> that is really good advice. So you mentioned one of the things that you really love is when you get to hear the stories of a lot of the Native youth that you work with. What are some of the best stories that you have heard that have inspired you that you think will inspire the BGG listeners? Oh, my gosh. There are so many amazing stories that I get to hear. I think some of the ones that stand out to me are the ones there's a young woman from the Umatilla Reservation who she saw a need for language to be preserved and revitalized. And so she took it upon herself to learn three different languages to then create a curriculum for her school to then teach the rest of her classmates their languages. And I'm always floored by that. There's people who in another young man in Chicago, who he is an urban native, he works completely kind of separated from his tribal community, but in his own way, he has helped build up this tribal community because they still exist, even if it is in a city. And his youth council, they were recognized as the best um, youth council of the year. And did the work he's doing to make sure that there's land recognition, land acknowledgement, and to keep his people and urban natives in the forefront of what is going on in Chicago. Like it's just so inspiring to watch them. Like there's so many different issues and area topics that come in through our, our programs and we see, and I think just seeing that the passion that native youth have for the work that they're doing really is what inspires me. I, those are just a couple little highlights. I really can't say that there's really one specifically. It's just, there's so many different things that native youth are doing. I'm, constantly amazed by just the initiative, the agency. They're just beautiful people who have beautiful passions and they're just, they're doing so much. And I, I have, a, sometimes I don't even know how they do what they do 
and I just kind of go along for the ride and get to help and support where I can. Um, I know that was a really roundabout way to answer that question, but it's, it's hard to pinpoint because there's just so much going on all the time. Um, with 573 federally recognized tribes, you know, we have a very large population. Native youth is actually one of the fastest growing um, populations in the country. So it's an exciting time to work with Native youth for sure. And for people who want to know more, who want to support your work, how could they get involved? The best way to get involved would be to first and foremost go visit our website, which is www.cnay.org. And when you go there, just look around and see what you can find. Um, we have ways to get updates so you can get updated on our events, our goings on, what Gen I is up to. Really, that's the first step. You can always email any of the staff with any questions, or you can email, if you just have a general question, um, cnayinfo at aspeninst.org. Those are the best ways to first get involved is you kind of have to ask us questions and we figure out ways to either um, kind of match you up with a native youth who's also interested in, in whatever area of expertise you're looking for. Uh, that's that's kind of a big uh, part of my job as well. Great. So I do want to pivot back and talk a little bit more about native political involvement. We are in the 2020 presidential election cycle. So many people are still saying it's coming. I'm like, no, we are in it. And this year, we have seen a lot of focus on indigenous issues, which I think is really great. You have several candidates who are rolling out very specific platforms and policies that relate to the indigenous community. What role do you see Native youth playing in the 2020 presidential election cycle? It is a very exciting time for Native peoples. And I think native youth especially they are the next generation they are going they are the leaders it's not that they're going to be they're already the leaders they're the ones that are going out into their communities finding ways to make sure that people have are registered they're making sure that they have access to the polls they are really doing the work to create that change to have better policy surrounding native people I think a lot of what I see, a good majority of the youth that come through our doors, they are interested in policy and politics because they know that the only way to create long lasting and sustainable change is to for them to get into those positions of power to find themselves at the table with others in order to bring Native issues to light. And they just continue to do that. They're, I mean, they're breaking down barriers really to just get in the door. They're the ones who are going to, to create, continue to create that change because they understand the importance of indigenous issues, but they also understand the importance to do the work to help decolonize healthcare, education, and, and politics overall. And for anyone who is listening, who is working on a presidential campaign, who is working on another campaign, what advice do you give them for engaging Native youth? The best advice, I think, is you just have to you have to reach out. I think a lot of people, they don't interact with Native people because they don't know how. I think for some reason, they think we're standoffish or, or that Native people aren't approachable. But we, 
we are so ready to share our stories and our experiences because we know it is only going to help shed light on what goes on in Indian country. I think the biggest, the first step you can take is to just reach out, find, contact me and I will connect you with a youth in your community, in your area, in your state who is very passionate about sharing their experience and, and getting their story um, to the forefront. So it's just, it's that finding ways to connect and build a community in those relationships. One final question for you, Tashia. It is a question I ask all of our guests on the BGG podcast. What advice do you have for the brown girls listening who are saying, I want to be just like her? I really had to think about this question. um, And I think my advice would be to be kind to yourself, to love yourself for who you are, because it's okay to be human. You're going to make mistakes. It's okay to not know exactly where you're going or what you want to do. And it's okay to find ways to do things in untraditional ways. Find the best way that works for you and just be true to yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, Brown Girls. Stay tuned for next week, where we will continue to highlight amazing women for Native American Heritage Month. Don't forget, you can stay up to date with us in between episodes on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The BG Guide. Until next time, brown girls.